Son of David, have mercy on me. May that ever be our cry, church. Son of David is actually um, a title that Christ had. You can come on forward, not show with that. He, um, David himself was a type of Christ, and God covenanted with David and promised that he would forever have a son to sit upon his throne. And so Jesus is the fulfillment of that covenant promise. So we sing, Son of David, have mercy on me. Uh, Nacho is coming forward, or Usher is coming forward with Bible, note sheets, and pencils. If you would like one, I would like for you to have the Bible. Is, we are blessed to be able to have that with us, always so freely and so easily. When you have your Bible, please do turn uh, to Numbers 21. Numbers, if you're not sure, is near the beginning of your Bible. It is the fourth book. So if you see Leviticus, you just need to go one chapter over. If you see Deuteronomy, you've gone too far. Just back it up a little bit and you're there. Now, I think that, that many people have the wrong idea about this book of Numbers. We, we tend to think that it's a, it's a lot of census counting, and there is that there, that it's a lot of naming the tribes of Israel and all the peoples that were in them. But we assume that it's just a numbering of the tribes as they make their way through the promised land. And this book is titled Numbers, after all. But I think it gets a bad rap in that. As if it's a book that only like math majors or accountants would like. Uh, that would be a wrong way of thinking about this book of Numbers. I had a brother share with me earlier that the book of Numbers doesn't get much page turns in his Bible. But what I hope that we will kind of understand tonight or this morning is that it's an appropriate book to be in the week before Resurrection Sunday. It is a book that is in fact filled with gospel promises and it in rich examples of God's character, his patience, his faithfulness, his just wrath, his love. It's a narrative, which means that it is telling a true story. And this specific true story is about the nation of Israel and their wandering through the wilderness. But contained in this true story are numerous examples of what we would call types and shadows that reveal the person and the work of Christ. And, and those are there by divine appointment, church. They are there by God's plan on purpose. Uh, they are there because God intends for us to see Christ in the text or to get to him from every text in all of Scripture. Jesus says in Psalm 47, Behold, I come in the scroll of the book. It is written of me. Augustine the pastor from the 5th century famously said, the new, and what he's, by saying new, what he's meaning is the new covenant or the new testament. Covenant and testament are interchangeable words. So Augustine said, the new is the old, or is in the old concealed, and the old is in the new revealed. So, it is our privilege then, every time we are in an Old Testament book, to peel back that veil and see our Savior there in the text. And that means that this book that we call Numbers is ultimately a book that points to Christ Jesus and the redemption that he would accomplish. So let's, let's read our passage together. You can follow along with me in your Bible. And then after we read it, we'll pray and ask God to, to bless our time in his word. So the reading of God's word. In Numbers 21, beginning at verse 4. From Mount Or they set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. 
And the people became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, so that many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. And everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. That is God's holy, inspired, and sufficient word. May he grant us understanding and apply it to our lives. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word, how it is that you have preserved it over all of these generations, how it is that it reveals to us you, your will, your plan of redemption, how it shows us your wonderful and eternal son. And Lord, I ask this morning that you would help us to never grow tired of the gospel and hearing it preached and hearing Christ exalted in it, that we would rejoice to know that we are cleft in him that he is for sin a double cure, that our wrath, the wrath that we deserve may be propitiated, and that the righteousness that he gives us counts us as pure in your sight. And we pray that you would give to us a greater understanding of your word. Open our eyes and our ears that we may see and hear. Lord, we don't think that we have the ability to understand apart from you. Lord, we know that all of life is grace, and so we ask for grace even now in this moment. Let your word be spoken of in truth, and let us hear with understanding and grow in our love for you and our love for others. In Christ's name, I pray. Amen. <clears throat> so, fascinating text, isn't it, church? Now, of course, this story doesn't exist in a vacuum. This is Numbers chapter 21, and so that means there's at least 21 other chapters of backstory going on here. And even more than that, this, this specific story, this specific story arc in the grand story of God's redemption has its beginnings even earlier than the first chapter of Numbers. It goes back to Exodus, back with God defeating the false gods of Egypt and freeing his people. That's really when this story arc that we're reading of here began. God is leading his redeemed from Egypt people to the land of covenant promise. And along the way, they are met with the reality of their sin and their need for mercy and for grace. And in that regard, we have much in common with them. E even more and even better, we are the recipients of a better covenant and of better promises. We have the covenant of grace, which is the new covenant, which was made in Christ's blood. Romans 8.1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. The, the covenants that led Israel, um, the covenants that they had, they progressively revealed this covenant of grace, which is the new covenant. But those covenants were never it. What I mean by that is no one was ever saved, no one was ever forgiven of their sins and united to Christ in faith through the Abrahamic, the Noahic, the Davidic, or the Old Covenant. 
Those that lived during the times of those covenants were saved, of course, some of them were, but they were saved by virtue of the covenant of grace, which is the new covenant, which was first promised from God in the Garden of Eden. And so we have a better covenant, a better promise than they do. We are also journeying to a promised land, those of us in the new covenant. But it's a better promised land, one with no sin, one with no trials, one with no death. God also has freed us from our slave masters, the slave master of sin, from death, from the lie that says we are our own masters. And of course, this journey, because we've not yet arrived in the promised land, though it is guaranteed for all who are truly in Christ, we also are met with our sin and our continual need for grace and mercy as we go about the wilderness that we are in. And thankfully, Christ is a fountain of mercy and grace, and he bids us to drink deep of him. So we have a lot to potentially learn from this text about ourselves and about our God who saves us. Now, Israel here, they are having a hard time. I think that we can give them that. I mean, it is all by their own fault that they're having this hard time, but they, they're having a hard time, and we can be sympathetic towards that. Uh, sometimes we do suffer, and it really isn't our fault. That is true for Christians today. It is simply the result of living in a world that is plagued in, of, by sin. It is simply the result of the inherited guilt that we have from Adam. But for the nation of Israel, they don't, they don't really have that going for them in this wilderness journey. It's more than that. Uh, they are dealing with the death of their high priest Aaron. He, he died in Numbers chapter 20, we read. But then in the beginning of Numbers chapter 21, we read of God's mercy and grace towards them. They, they had victory over the Canaanites. God gave that to them. God won that for them. And then now we read that they leave Mount Or and they take a way that leads around Edom. And that's where the trouble starts. That's where we see a familiar pattern, actually. And I say familiar because literally, this is the 14th time in this wilderness journey that Israel has complained. And in that, it's a wonderful testimony of the patience of God. And that's not to say that there isn't judgment here, because there is. But even when there is judgment, even when there was judgment for their complaining, the mercy and grace of God was offered along with it to the group. And of course, God never destroyed the group which is what he would have been in his right to do. Now, we need to think about this in our own lives. You know, are, are you thankful for the Lord's patience in your life? Are you thankful for the Lord's patience in the life of your sons and your daughters and your friends and your family members? We should be. You know, are, are you thankful to him for his patience unto you? Are you grateful for it? Uh, Peter, he writes that it is the Lord's patience which slows Christ's return. He is patiently waiting until all the elect are drawn to him, and then, and only then, will he return. And, and soon thereafter, all of his saints will enter into the true promised land, the new heavens and the new earth, Zion, the new Jerusalem. And sometimes we want that to come soon, I know. But it is his patience for his children, his love for them, that delays him from doing that. And, and we should be thankful for it, that he's not going to miss any of those that are going to be saved in Christ. 
And we, we tend to forget how patient God is, church, and how necessary this doctrine is. I'm reminded of Jonathan Edwards, his famous sermon. Uh, it was called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. If you, you might remember the sermon just from your school, they, you talk about that in American history. It's a rich and biblical treatment of the wrath, of the patience, and the love of God. And there's a quote from that sermon in which Edwards notes that unconverted sinners are like a spider that is grabbed by its legs and dangled over the fire. And he says that sinners, in fact, are in the hand of God like that, that that fire is an eternal hell. And the point of him saying that is that God is loving and gracious, and so flee to him, flee to him for salvation. Now is the, is the time for salvation. And lost people need to hear that. They need to know that they are at enmity with the Lord, that they are opposed to him because they cannot be reconciled to God if they don't first understand that they need to be forgiven. They need to repent. And of course, God was pleased to use that sermon, Sinners in the Hand of an Angry God, to lead to revival among the church, to lead to many people being added to the kingdom of God. Many people received Christ from hearing that sermon. And I think that Israel would have been blessed to hear a sermon like that because their constant complaining was putting the Lord to the test. And eventually, he acted upon their rebellion. He acted upon their complaining. He let go of the spider's leg, if you will. Thankfully, you know, being in Christ prevents that sort of judgment for us. But, but let's look at these instances with Israel. So I'm just going to to name the passage that they, come, that they come in, and you could write them down if you want to look at them later and study them later and look at them in more fully, but I'm just going to give you quick snapshots of these 14 times of complaining from Israel. So the first example is in Exodus 5, and it's 1, verse 1 to 22. There Israel complains because Pharaoh makes their workload heavy since Moses is compelling Pharaoh to let them go. And so God in this, he's merciful, he's gracious, he promises them deliverance, and then he starts to bring the plagues against Israel, or excuse me, against Egypt. And then Exodus 14, verse 11 and 12, Israel complains as they see Pharaoh approaching them at the Red Sea. They're, so they, they're standing here, the Red Sea is here, Pharaoh's coming up behind them, and so they complain. But Moses encourages them, and then God splits the Red Sea, and Israel walks across on dry land into safety. The third example is Exodus 15, verse 22. They complain because the water is bitter that they're having to drink now. Now they're, they're gone from Egypt. They're across the Red Sea, and they're complaining because the water is bitter. And Moses intercedes for them. He prays for them. Nothing happens. Exodus 16, we read of the story of them complaining about being hungry. And God gives them manna from heaven, this bread from heaven, and they, they, um, to satisfy their need. And I, I would think, at least, it's probably delicious. We don't have a frame of reference for what it's like. I assume probably something like Chick-fil-A. But he satisfies their, <laughs> satisfies their need in that. Um, I think so. Exodus, the next example, Exodus 17, 1 through 4. They complain about being thirsty now, and they, they threaten to kill Moses. So Moses, he, he prays to God for them, and, and God gives them water out of the rock. And then now after this example, so God hasn't brought any judgment yet, despite these five times of complaining. After this example, God brings out his rod. 
when they start complaining. Uh, number six is Exodus 32. In that 32nd chapter, we read about them complaining that Moses is taking too long on the mountain and God uses the Levites to judge 3,000 men. And Moses intercedes for them then at that point and makes atonement. That was when they made that golden calf. And then God came down, or excuse me, Moses came down to the mountain and you know, broke those first two tablets. And then in number seven, or I should say example seven, in Numbers chapter 11, the people start complaining about the food, the food that God's given them. And apparently they didn't like it, or they got sick of it. And so God sends a great plague. The eighth example is in Numbers 12. And there in Numbers 12, we read how Miriam and how Aaron complain about Moses' leadership. And so Miriam actually gets leprosy. And then Moses intercedes and prays for her, and her leprosy goes away. Example 9 would be found in Numbers 14. The people complain about the report from the spies. Here's, so the people are close to the promised land, the land God promised to give them. And they send out 12 spies, one from each tribe. And they come back and they say the land is wonderful. It is flowing with milk and honey. It is beautiful. It is good to live in. But the people are terrifying. And you know, we're not going to be able to overtake them. And so they, they complain about the report from the spies, and Moses intercedes, and he prevents a plague from going through, but God curses them at that point and says that they'll wander in the wilderness for 40 years. And then in Numbers 14 also, verse 10 actually, the people complain about their leadership being, you know, Moses in that regard, and, you know, the two spies who didn't uh, shy away. And so a plague does come upon 10 of the 12 spies at that point. The 11th example is number 16. In number 16, we learn about what's called Korah's rebellion. So that takes place, and in judgment of it, God opens up the earth, and he swallows up all of those who were rebelling against him. The 12th example is in Numbers 16 as well. It's the end of the, cha the chapter. At that point, people complain again, and they accuse Moses of killing the people. And so God then sends a plague and it kills, and what we read is that this plague travels through the camp and it kills 14,700 people until Moses intercedes and in, in that he learns of God's plan to, to end it, is sending, Mo, sending Aaron to stand in the way of the plague and essentially make atonement and the plague didn't go past him. The 13th example is in Numbers 20. The people contend with Moses about not having water again, which their rock was following them, so it's hard to get. But Moses becomes embittered towards them at that point, and he strikes the rock without interceding and going to God. And then Moses loses his right to enter the promised land at that point. And that brings us to our text for this morning, the 14th example. Verse 4 says that they became impatient on the way. And then verse 5, they spoke against Moses and they spoke against God once again. And they complained about the food and the water once again. Now, to us, that sounds crazy, right? Like, don't they realize Moses is the mediator of, of the old covenant? Don't they realize that God is, is God? Don't they remember the parting of the Red Sea, the ten plagues, the pillar of fire by night, the pillar of cloud in the day? Don't they remember 
the judgment that came upon the people for all of their complaining and rebelling before, how could you forget those things? But nevertheless, the collective hardness of their hearts was such that they became ungrateful despite knowing all of those things. And so they complained in a way that they've already complained before even. And really, it's not that hard to believe. I think some of us that have children understand what this is like. We know what it's like for them to go about the same pattern, receive correction, then go about that same pattern again, and then receive correction, and then go do the same thing again, and receive correction, and on, and on, and on. And even more than that, those of us who seek to make our calling and our election sure, those of us who examine ourselves as God's word instructs us to, we should realize that when Israel does this thing of repeating the same sin over and over again, is that they're acting just like us. They're acting just, just like me. This passage speaks of my sin and of you and of your sin, and we're never very creative in it. We go back to the same patterns over and over again. However patient and however gracious God is in his dealings with us, we repeat the same old cycles of sin over and over again. And yes, God is gracious. And yes, he does grant us victory over specific sins and grace to mortify it. But then guess what? we realize that some other sin, which has a similar root problem as that sin, was there as well. And so we, and we go back on that system of, of you know, repenting and receiving mercy and grace. And so every day, friends, we need grace. Every day we need to live in a pattern of true repentance. And so I would ask you, when is the last time that you've repented of anything? Every day we need the gospel. And we'll actually see that in the continuation of this passage of Scripture. But we need to go over some other things first. We'll see that God teaches them that, that they need it every day. Um, but like I said, some other things first. So we're going to break down this passage into four parts. And then we're, hopefully that'll help us understand it a little bit better. The first two parts we've already touched on a little bit. The first is the weight of Israel's sin. And you'll see that in verse 4 and 5. The second thing is the just judgment of God. And we'll see that in verse 6. The third thing is the response of the people to God and his judgment. And that's verse 7. And then in verse 8 and 9, the merciful and gracious provision of God. And again, that's verse 8 and 9. So first up, Israel's sin. We want to first look at the weight of their sin. And Israel, what they're doing here is they're displaying a lack of trust and a rejection of God's provision. They, they virtually blaspheme God in this passage. They are ungrateful in the face of God's extraordinary generosity and provision for them in this passage. If it wasn't for God, they would be under the yoke of a cruel taskmaster in Egypt. And we see something of the seriousness of Israel's sin. At the end of verse 4, we read that they became impatient on the way. The people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? There is no food and no water, and we loathe worthless food. So there are five things that Israel does here. You probably caught them, or some of them at least. So the first thing is Israel becomes impatient. 
Again, talked about this a little bit. I think it's a little understandable why they've been ha um, why they're impatient at this point. They they've been having a rough go at it. They're going around Edom when Canaan's not that far. They they could just go straight through Edom and, and get there. But they know also that some won't make it into the land. Plus, Aaron had recently died. And so it's understandable that they're impatient, but it's not excusable, church. I mean, after all, this is at least in part the result of their own sin. The spies had gone into the land. They told them of the good of the land, but the majority of the spies feared and they didn't believe God. And two of the spies did believe God, but the majority of the people went along with the bigger group of spies when they should have went with the two. Nevertheless, um, this mess comes after that because they rejected God's command to them to go into the land. And so they're in the trouble of their own making. And so it's understandable that they're impatient, but again, it's, it's inexcusable. They don't have a right to be that way. Secondly, notice how they profane and dishonor God and Moses. Again, who do these people think they are? Moses is God's personally appointed mediator. And God, again, he's, he's God. How can you speak against God? He's the God who brought them out of Egypt, and they speak against him, they speak against Moses. Now, of course, you know, we've never done anything like that, right? We've, we've never questioned God. We've never thrown the question back into God's face, like, what exactly are you doing here, Lord? Do you know what you're doing in my life? No, you know, we've never done anything like that, right? Of course not. Well, maybe not, maybe not today at least. Maybe for some of you today already. I don't know. So it's, we can identify with them. And so they speak against God and Moses. And then thirdly, specifically, they call into question God's plan of redemption. Basically, what's happening here is they're accusing God of having a lousy plan. They think that they're wiser than God. They are clearly missing the fear of the Lord as we know that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, that it is the beginning of wisdom. But they think that they know better than God here. They don't like His plan. It's like they speak against God and Moses and say, why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in this wilderness? There's no food here. There's no water here. You've got a bad plan, God. This is not a good plan. It's not a good path. There's a better path. I would go this way. Why are we doing it this way? You should have left us back in Egypt. That's what they're saying. And how sad is it when we see people who are in covenant with God desire to return back to their lives before God rescued them. We see it happen, though. And in God's word, when we do it, he convicts us, and sometimes he'll chastise us because he loves us. He won't let his children fully return back to their old ways, to that old man, that old life. He perseveres us. And he persevered the nation of Israel. Granted, there was judgment that came, but it wasn't on all of them. And these last two points are very important in the story, I think. The fourth one is that they doubted God's ability to provide for them in the wilderness. They say, there's no food and water here. Now, this has to be, I think, the most middle-class American thing that we read in all of Scripture. It is like the person who has a refrigerator and a cabinet stocked with food. They look into them, and then they determine, oh, there's nothing to eat. 
and then they shut it and they, they, you know, they go about their business doing something else. Um, we've never done that, I'm sure. But, but what's been going on here? He's been giving these people what they need. Through the rock, he provided them water. He gave them bread from heaven. He provided them food to eat. He gave them quails to eat when they desired meat. There's no food and water here, they say. And so they doubt God's ability to provide for them in the wilderness. But there is a bigger issue here, friends. In a way, they're rejecting Christ and rejecting these, this provision from God. Both the bed, or excuse me, the bread from heaven and the water from the rock are what we would call types of Christ. They pointed to him. They revealed him. In John's gospel, he, Jesus, that is, calls himself the bread from heaven. He calls himself the bread of life. And he says that anyone who eats of me and who drinks of me shall never perish, that they shall have eternal life. Then also in John's gospel, in John chapter 4, Jesus has an interaction with a woman at a well. And there she's wanting to get water and Jesus sees her. And he asks from her water. And then she you know, responds to that as she, as she does, surprised. And Jesus says to her, well, if you would have asked me for water, that he has a water that he gives that people who drink it will never die. And then even more, the Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 10, 3 through 5, verse 3 says, and all that ate, it says, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with the most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. So what that means, church, is that with New Testament eyes, with eyes that have been opened to see what is concealed in the Old Testament, we can know that Israel was in fact rejecting Christ when they were rejecting the provision of the water and the bread. Christ is God's provision for sinners. In Him alone we have life. And these were all pointing to Him. It's as if they were rejecting Christ Himself. And fifth, based off of what we know from verse 4, they show themselves to be spiritually blind. They said, we loathe this worthless food. You remember, my friends, that some of this food would actually be, excuse me, would actually be taken up and stored in the Ark of the Covenant so that they would you know, remember God's provision to them. That it was the bread of heaven, that it pointed to Christ. It existed by divine appointment, and yet they speak of it as if it's worthless food. Could you imagine saying to God, you have a worthless Christ, God? It's unbelievable, isn't it? This is essentially what they've done, though. They've un they, in their ungratefulness, deny God's provision for them in the wilderness, and in that, they reject his offer of salvation. So what do they do? They don't acknowledge God's power. They don't appreciate his generosity. They don't recognize his mercy. They ignore his sovereignty. They don't trust his word. It's all rolled up into one. That is how sinful their sin is. But my friends, understand that every time we sin, we do the same thing. Every time we sin, every time that we decide we're going to do it our way and not do it God's way, we're doing the exact same thing as Israel. Maybe a difference in the specifics, but at its heart. 
So don't point your finger back at them until you realize uh, when you seek to do it your way, you're doing the same thing. And may God give us grace that we don't do that, so that we only seek to do it His way, that we seek to be led by the Spirit. So that's the way to their sin. The second point is the just judgment of God. Now again, um, we know that He sends fiery serpents. Maybe it should be translated as poisonous snakes. You know, the image we're supposed to have here is not that they were like snakes on fire, you know, wandering out through the plains and biting people. Some commentators note that the bite wound felt like it was on fire due to the poison. Now, I've never been bit by a poisonous snake, praise the Lord, but I could imagine how the bite mark from a poisonous snake would feel like it was on fire. And so we read then in verse 6, The Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, so that many people of Israel died. And this is the just judgment of God, friends. The people sin. They sin in rejecting God's provision, which was pointing to the Christ. The people sin in complaining about the adversity of their circumstances. So what does God do? Now in this 14th example, He sends them more adversity that could only be remedied by another type of Christ, which is what they were rejecting in this trial anyways. And we'll get there soon. Essentially, though, the complainers in Israel were saying, things are bad. And God goes, oh yeah? It's about to get a lot worse. Uh, You want to see how bad things can get? Well, then watch this. So they complain toward God because things aren't the way they want them to be. But they're in fact the way that they are because of their decisions, so he sends just judgment. You know, sometimes we can only learn the lessons that we ought to learn in small trials by facing greater ones. I can remember my parents in my own life offering me this encouragement on a number of occasions as I grew up. They would say, Paul, you can either do this the hard way or you could do this the easy way. And what that meant is that, you know, What they wanted to happen was going to get done, but it could happen the hard way with some punishment, and then it would get done still, or it could happen the easy way and just get done sans the punishment. And in a way, that that is like Israel in the wilderness. You know, they're going to do what God says. The question is, will you do it the easy way or do it the hard way? And they chose the hard way. They chose the hard way at least 14 times, 14 times that we read of. And very often, the lesson that we ought to learn in small trials, we can only learn by facing big trials, by facing greater ones. There's a great irony in this as well, church, and one that I think that we need to pay attention to. Their complaints about their adversity, their complaints about their trials, led them not to relief, but to even greater adversity, when the judgment of God then rightly comes upon them for their sin. So, So what do we do when we face adversity? What do we do when we face trials? Do we complain and moan and gripe and and just go about how bad our life is and how miserable we have it, how a woe is me? Is that what we do? Or do we trust in the sovereignty of the Lord? Do we believe that in His providence He is working towards our good through these trials? That's what the Lord says after all. Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation for anyone who is in Christ Jesus. These trials that come, come on to you, they're not condemning you for your sanctification. 
Romans 8.28, For we know that those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. The Puritan Thomas Watson said about trials this. He says, When we are brought low, let our faith be high. Let us believe that God intends us no harm. Though he casts us into the deep, he will not drown us. Believe that he is still a father. He afflicts us in as much mercy as he gives Christ to us. By his rod of discipline, he's fitting us for the inheritance. I can say amen to that. Sometimes, the lesson that we ought to learn in lesser trials, we only learn in greater trials. And sometimes our, our very complaints of adversity only lead to greater adversity. And the trials that we're enduring aren't lifted. They're made heavier. So we need to be aware of that. We need to be aware of how to respond in trials. Thirdly, the people respond to God's judgment. God's just judgment comes upon the people in the form of poisonous snakes. The people are dying. And this leads to an extraordinary response by God's people. It's a response of repentance and prayer. It's the third thing I want you to see in the passage. You see it in verse 7. The people come to Moses and say, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So, God, in his mercy, he uses this trial to move the people towards repentance and prayer. That's what they weren't doing before this. But he uses this trial to get them there. The fact that they acknowledge their sin, that they seek God's forgiveness, that they go to God personally, or excuse me, that they go to God's personally appointed mediator and ask him to intercede is an indication that God has used this trial for their spiritual well-being, for their good. And so they respond in repentance and prayer. God has used this trial to, to press them to squeeze them to, so that they might see their need of repentance, their need of grace, their need of mercy. And so they respond in that way. And they ask for forgiveness. And, and they say they're sorry. And notice, notice it's not just, I'm, I'm sorry. It's specific, isn't it? It's, I'm sorry for speaking against you and the Lord. True repentance is specific, friends. If you don't specifically repent for your sin, you haven't really repented of it. And we need to, we need to know that. And so they acknowledge that Moses is God's appointed mediator, and they ask him, pray to the Lord that he might take the serpents away from us. They ask a good thing, but it's true that God doesn't actually give them what they ask for. He does something better, I think. And something that teaches us as well. But even in that the fact they make this request, they acknowledge, they're acknowledging that only God can give them the relief they need. They're not trying to solve it themselves. They're dependent upon the Lord here. And so the Lord used this trial in order to move them to repentance and to prayer. They, they didn't take the easy way. They took the hard way. But God in His mercy has led them to run to Him and to look for help from him, in Him. And then the last category... God's merciful provision. You see it there in verse, verses 8 and 9, this merciful and gracious, loving provision of God. Life for only a look. It's for this specific point that I chose this text for our, our short series on pictures of the cross in the Old Testament. 
So verse 8 and 9 read, And the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bits anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. So I want to draw your attention to a few things in this. And then with the help that I received from a couple of pastors, Nick Batsig, who's alive today, living today, and Robert Murray M. Shane, who was a Scottish preacher from about 100 years ago or so, uh, to name a couple, to show you the depth of the typology that exists in this provision of God between the provision here in Numbers and what Christ has done and who Christ is. So first of all, God's solution is different than what they prayed for. And again, I would argue that his solution is better. They asked God to remove all the poisonous snakes, but is that what God did? It's not. Instead, he instructs Moses to make a bronze snake and put it on a pole. And the snakes are still there. Presumably, even they are still biting people. If you notice verse 9, it says that if anyone gets bit, they just look. But brothers and sisters, there is provision now, isn't there? The bite from the serpent is only deadly if they don't look to the, in faith to God's provision and then live. The snakes that are wandering about through the camp are a physical representation of the penalty of their sin. It, it, they bring death. It's God's judgment for their sin even. And then he instructs Moses to lift up a bronze snake, one that is like the snakes that have been through, the, um, through their camp in the wilderness, but different than the snakes who were biting the people. Guess what would be missing from this snake that was going to be lifted up? Poison. Poison, right? There would be no venom in this bronze snake. And so in essence, you have a sinless representation of sin being lifted up on a pole. And isn't that what Christ Jesus is? A sinless representation of sin who was lifted up. He descended from heaven. He took on flesh. He lived a sinless life and then was lifted up on a cross so that everyone who looks to him for life will live. He became a curse for us. He bore the wrath that we deserve. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. They needed this grace every day. You know, if God just took all the sin out of the world, if God just took all those snakes out of, out of the wilderness, they would be worse off. What if God just took all the sin out of the world for us today? What would that, I mean, we, that sounds good to us, but that would mean every single person would just be gone because we're all sinners. And there are some people, some of us, who haven't received Christ in faith. So it is better, it is greater that God gave them this plan instead, that he allowed in his patience sin to remain, but he gives a way out through it, through looking to a sinless one in faith. This true story that we're reading about here in Numbers 21 is here by divine appointment, friends. It's here because God's plan of redemption was always going to find its height in Christ. God's plan of redemption was always about fulfillment and the substitutionary atonement, the substitutionary death that Christ died on the cross. And he's revealed this plan from the Garden of Eden on. 
This is the reason as to why Jesus will point to this passage when he's trying to explain how faith and regeneration are all caught up in salvation. Um, He's talking to a man named Nicodemus. Let's turn to John chapter 3. I know this is a a well-known passage, but we could see it for ourselves there in John chapter 3. Of course, we're all familiar with John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, so that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And so right before that, in verses 13 and 14, Jesus quotes this instance that was happening here in Numbers 21. It's verse 14 and 15, and it says, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. So Jesus says that this story here in Numbers was not just some accident. It's not just some random way of going about bringing this healing. It was there by divine appointment to teach the people about who Christ is and what he would do. In all of this, there are at least 14 points, I think, that can deepen our understanding of the gospel and how the lifted up bronze serpent is a type of Christ. Now, I didn't plan for these 14 points to match up with the 14 passages of Israel's complaining. It just worked out that way. And I know some of you are probably complaining in your minds that Paul's going to try to go into 14 points at this point in our service, but I assure you it's not going to be very long. They're kind of quick. And I, I hope that in reading these, you might be excited and wish that I would go on further. So I, like I said, I got help from this from like Pastor Nick Batsig and some stuff that Robert Murray M. Shane wrote. So the first one, and this is, remember, this is showing the parallels between the bronze serpent and Christ. The first one, the bronze serpent was God's means of salvation for the Israelites who were bitten by the serpent in the wilderness. Jesus Christ is crucified, the crucified Christ is God's means of salvation for everyone who has been bitten by the deadly venom of sin in the wilderness of this fallen world, which, of course, is everyone. Number two, the bronze serpent was God's only way of salvation for the Israelites. There wasn't another way that they can be healed from those fiery serpents. And Jesus Christ crucified is God's only way of salvation for Jews and Gentiles. The bronze serpent was a visual representation of the wrath of God against a grumbling and complaining people. Christ crucified is a visual representation of the wrath of God against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of man. Number four, the bronze serpent represented the propitiation of the wrath of God, the appeasement of the wrath, the satisfaction of the payment of sin. And whoever looked at the serpent would know that the wrath of God was then turned away. They would look and live. The cross of Christ displays the wrath of God as well and the turning away of that wrath as well if we look to Jesus. Number five, the bronze serpent was a symbolic representation of the venomous serpents that bit the people and brought deadly consequences on account of their sin. However, the bronze serpent was without the venom that caused their death. Christ represented those who were ruined by sin, taking to himself a body in the likeness of sinful flesh, yet was without sin, so that he might, through his death, save those who by their own sin were poisoned unto death. He was made a curse 
for us that we might receive the blessings of God. Number six, the bronze serpent was meant to remind the Israelites of the cause of their sin. It was meant to carry their minds back to the Garden of Eden where Satan came in the form of a serpent to tempt our first parents. And the punishment for sin brought into world through the temptation of that serpent of old was then laid on Jesus at the cross. The penalty for our sin fell on him. He became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Number seven, with respect to the serpent in the wilderness, the healing that they were to receive wasn't some magical thing. It was dependent upon the word of God concerning his means of salvation. With Christ crucified, salvation is not some magical thing, some magical formula that we do, but it is also dependent upon God's word concerning his means of salvation, being that of Christ. Number eight, as the poisoned Israelites were called to believe God's command and the bronze serpent was made the object of that command, we see both the means and the instrument of God's salvation being typified. In the account of Jesus' inter interaction with Nicodemus, both the means and the instrument of God's salvation are pointed out. A crucified Savior is the means, and the means of God's salvation, and then faith, or looking to Him, is the instrument of that salvation. Number nine, the plagued Israelites were externally called to look upon the bronze serpent in order to be healed. Today, sinners are called to look to, to upon the crucified Christ and to be saved. Number 10, the serpent was lifted up before the Israelites in the midst of the camp so that those who were bitten might look and be healed. Christ, though, he was lifted up first on the cross, then in his resurrection, then in his ascension, and then finally in the preaching of the gospel so that sinners might look to him and be saved. Number 11, the bronze serpent of the staff was the central and all-sufficient means of healing for the Israelites. And the cross of Christ, or excuse me, the Christ of the cross is the central and all-sufficient healing for the salvation for the chosen people of God. Number 12, just as God chose a man, Moses, to lift up the serpent on the pole so that men might look to it and be healed, God has chosen ministers to hold up Jesus in the preaching of Christ and Him crucified so that men might look to Him and be saved. Number 13, just as looking to a bronze serpent was a, a foolish means of healing poisoned Israelites, so looking to a crucified Savior, a publicly executed man, is a foolish means in the world's eyes for salvation of sinners condemned to death. That's why we read that the plan of salvation is a stumbling block to those who are opposed to God. And it's only with eyes to see that we enjoy it and embrace it as God's wisdom. Number 14, the bronze serpent was held up for many for salvation from the wrath of God and the deadly consequences of sin. The implication is there that not everyone looked. So they had to look but not, it would seem that not everyone did. Christ was lifted up for many for salvation of men from the wrath of God and the deadly consequences of sin. Only those who looked were saved from the poison of the serpent bites. Only those who look to faith in Christ are redeemed from the curse of the fall. So the bronze serpent church, it would, it would later become an object of false worship. We would read 
we continued on uh, into 2 Kings. Hezekiah, the king that God used to bring a lot of reform to him, he would actually destroy it. The people made an idol out of it, and they called it Nehushtan. I'm sure I'm saying that wrong. The people we read there in, in 2 Kings 18, they were making offerings to this serpent on a pole. Um, they weren't following the simple plan of God, which was just look and live. Instead, they decided to do their own thing. They were bringing something from themselves and not just their sin and repentance and faith. It was their work, their effort that they were counting on to bring to this thing an offering. And we need to be sure that we don't do that to Christ, friends, that we don't turn this salvation that we have by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone to something that, that we think we have to work to do or work to maintain. Don't look what you can bring to Christ. Simply just look to Christ. People are looking for salvation in many different places these days, in their bank accounts, in relationships, and careers, and families, and so on, and so on. There is, however, only one place where salvation can be found. And that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. To search for rest and ultimate fulfillment in anything or anyone else is to commit idolatry. And so are, are you trusting in Christ alone today, or are you looking for hope elsewhere? When trials come, do you moan and complain? Well, there's a better way. Are you lost and unconverted this morning? Are you like a spider, hung over the fire, not knowing when the Lord may let go? Well, there is a better way. Look and live by looking to Christ. Let's pray. God in heaven, we thank you that you are patient. We confess, Lord, that we are often not.